0: But before I do, I just was given permission just immediately right here at the pulpit to be able to notify you about this. But our dear brother, Wade Vickery, suffered a mild stroke Friday morning. Uh, There seems to be no lasting effects from that. Uh, They released him from the hospital last night. Uh, He and the rest of his family are at home uh, probably watching us online right now, even as we speak. Uh, but uh, they wanted you to be able to know so that you could pray for them. They wanted us to wait, delay getting the news out until they knew precisely what they were dealing with. But uh, please pray for Wade in his recovery, and we shall do so now. Let's pray. Lord, you remind us all the time, um, both through our dear brother Wade's um, medical issues uh, this weekend, also through the passing of our, our dearly beloved brother Ron that life here on this earth is very fragile. And that, Lord, we need to make the most of every opportunity. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would keep our hearts mindful that our purpose here is to glorify you, to make much of you. And that, Lord, that whether in the living or in the dying, you would have preeminence in our lives and that we would submit ourselves to you and that we would listen to your word as you speak to us through the Bible. And pray, Lord, that we can implement um, in our lives the fruit, Lord, that only your Holy Spirit can produce uh, as we are obedient to what you command. And so, Lord, may you receive the honor, may you receive all the glory, and may our lives be transformed. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at the attitude of the Pharisees toward Jesus. We saw that their primary concern was for ceremonial uncleanliness, or ceremonial cleanliness. They criticized Jesus and his disciples for for leaving themselves open to defilement by the things that they touched. Contaminated hands could touch food, and once consumed, that would make the whole body impure. And Jesus boldly proclaims here before all the people in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And Jesus goes on to make the point that it's not what is outside of us that causes us to sin. It's our own sinful hearts that produce sin. This is vastly important because it means each of us are responsible for our own individual transgressions. We might be provoked into a sinful action by our environment, but it's always our own choice to sin. Which, as a point of clarification, I, I would counsel it's always wise to remove yourself from situations that would tempt you to trespass God's commands when possible. But if we would eliminate the sinful desires that emerge from our heart, we need to have a radical heart transformation. And to take things further with this concept of how it's not what is outside of us that makes us unclean, it's what's inside of us, Jesus proves it in the next scene by entering the regions of Tyre and Sidon. And these two cities are located in what is now southern Lebanon, which originally was the allotted land to the descendants of Naphtali, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they had never been completely controlled after the conquest And they're filled, and they were flirting with their pagan neighbors around them. This region became a notorious area of synchronistic religion of Judaism and paganism, and it was frequently called out by the Old Testament prophets. And there, as we learn from Mark's gospel, which carefully parallels these episodes here in Matthew, Jesus encounters a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew chooses to identify her broadly as a Canaanite. She is a descendant of Israel's ancient enemy. And this woman begs Jesus to free her daughter from demonic oppression. We looked at her story two weeks ago when we looked at some of the activities that that Jesus did that drew the anger of the Pharisees. But let me briefly recount it again because it's going to have relevance to the rest of the chapter, which, as I mentioned, closely parallels Mark's gospel And this scene with the Syrophoenician woman is a subset of the remaining theme of the chapter. So first, as a Canaanite, this woman recognized that she was an outsider to the Jewish Jesus. She was not entitled to any blessings from our Lord. Second, despite being an outsider, she recognized who he was— She addresses him by his messianic kingly title. She says, "Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David." And with an illustration, Jesus uses a parable to explain his position in relationship to her. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 26, it says, "And he answered." It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, again, I will remind you in our politically charged world, some would be offended by thinking that children equal Jews here and dogs equal Gentiles. But the Greek word for dog here is a domesticated animal. And the point that the Lord is making is that the children should eat first. But this woman exercises great faith with her next words. Verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She believes that there is enough grace even for her, an outsider, a Gentile. And our Lord commends her faith and rewards her by granting her request, despite her not being a Jew. Now, if we were to keep on reading from here in our English translations, we might see this interaction with the Canaanite woman as a one-off perhaps like the episode with the Roman centurion in chapter 8. But what we are about to see is even more remarkable. And I hope it's going to further dispel this myth that our author Matthew is only writing to Jewish believers. Verse 29 tells us, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now the location is key to unlocking these last verses of the chapter. Because we need to ask, which side of the Sea of Galilee did Jesus go to? If he went to the western side, he would have been in the highly populated Jewish territory. If he went to the eastern side, he would have been in distinctly Gentile territory. Now, I'm going to go ahead and make the answer easy from the simplest way, which is to consult Mark chapter 7, verse 31, which again, I'll keep telling you, parallels this passage. And it's explicit. That verse tells us, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Jesus is on the eastern side of the sea in Gentile country, the region of the ten cities. And we saw this location back in chapter 8, verse 28, when Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and freed the two men from demonic oppression. Jesus seems to be following the direction from what we read last week in Isaiah 29. It says, It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon, remember that's where Tyre and Sidon are, while Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, and the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah describes a day when even the Gentiles get to experience grace. Now we might wonder if Matthew was trying to hide the fact that this is Gentile country. Well, I don't think so for four reasons. Number one, this is on the heels of granting the Canaanite woman's request. So Matthew is dealing with the concept of Jesus coming into contact with so-called unclean people. Second in the text, in verse 37, Matthew uses a unique Roman Gentile word for basket, sporis. He uses that rather than the typical word, uh, kafanos, which back in chapter 14, verse 20 was used when he was dealing primarily with the Jews. Third, we're told this happens in a desolate place in verse 33. Now, now Jesus could have returned to that same desolate place where he fed the 5,000-plus on the southern end of the lake. But the likely place is the eastern shore of the sea that was nowhere near as populated as the northwest end where the city of Capernaum was located. Plus, there is a mention of a single mountain or a hill, which best describes the eastern shore there. And finally, after the miracles in verse 31, we're told that the crowds glorified the God of Israel. Now, that is a highly unusual phrase to be uttered by a Jew. For example, when Jesus healed the paralytic in chapter 9, we are told the crowds glorified God, not the God of Israel, as if there might be acknowledgement of more than one God. No, no. Matthew seems to be drawing attention that these were outsiders, Gentiles, who recognized something different about the God of the Jews that was different from their own pantheon of gods. So aside from Mark's identification, I think we can safely conclude that Jesus here is in Gentile territory. Now, there are many differences from when Jesus was in this distinctly Jewish region in chapter 14, when he also did the miracle and and fed over 5,000 people. And the primary change, of course, is that this is now being done for a Gentile audience. But there are also many similarities, too. And it's these that I want to draw attention to this morning. It's why I subtitled the sermon, Same Tune, Different Verse. Jesus is with a different people group, yet performing similar actions, And they can be summed up as more crowds, more compassion, more unbelief, and more confirmation of the authority and power of the Lord Jesus. So let's take a look here at the details of the story. The first thing we see is more crowds coming to the Lord. Jesus has just planted himself on a hill and a large crowd of people have assembled around him and they're bringing their infirm to him. The text describes all sorts of conditions here. Lame, blind, mute, and the word that's translated cripple in your text, which is the Greek word koulos, which literally means maimed in the hands or in the feet. And by adding the phrase and many others, this means there were some brought before him with illnesses of a similar type. And Jesus is fulfilling the words of what we read earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In verse 32, we're told this is happening over a period of three days. Some of the crowds may have been present due to their own personal illness, but no doubt others were sticking around just to witness such a spectacle. It didn't matter what they set before the feet of the Lord Jesus. He touched these Gentiles, and he healed them. And if you really want to see something that would have flipped out the Pharisees and their cleanliness issues, read what Jesus did with the deaf-mute man in Mark chapter 7. That also describes this scene. It would have been a germaphobe's nightmare. But the crowds were gathering, they were being healed, and they were witnessing miracles. And they were in awe and wonder at what this man Jesus was doing. And we can discern from the text that this was so like the meek, lowly Jesus. No one was glorifying him. No, all the glory was going to his father, the God of Israel. Making true his prayer in John seventeen four. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And as he does so, once again, the crowd around him becomes massive. And next we see more compassion from the Lord Jesus. There seems to be a break in the action of healing here. And Jesus calls his disciples to himself there in verse 32. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now these three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. This was staggering to me. These Gentiles are coming to Jesus for healing. They are imposing on his time, and and he's taking the time to heal them. He is under no obligation to feed them. But he recognizes that some of the people have been there with him for three days, and no doubt in that desolate place, their resources would have been drained. And the beautiful, kind-hearted, gentle Jesus notices not only their physical infirmities, but also their hunger. And he announces he is unwilling to send them away hungry. He is unwilling to send them away hungry. What a Savior who recognizes our every need. What compassion of a God who is concerned about the whole person. If you come to Jesus in your brokenness, This is the type of care you can expect from him. So I just want to pause here a bit in the narrative, and I I want to ask the question, is Jesus contradicting himself in verses 24 and 26 by ministering to these Gentiles? Was Jesus somehow violating his conscience? Well, the answer is no, not if you believe like the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 11 that it was God's plan all along to include members from all nations of the earth into his people that would glorify him through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul put it succinctly to the churches of Galatia in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Believing Gentiles are included in the promise of Israel by faith in Jesus Christ. But at this point, the Gentiles here in Matthew 15 are only receiving the common grace of Jesus. Notice, our master is extending his healing here regardless of what they understood about him. Just like he did with his Jewish brethren. They've not received salvation yet. It was the Jews who were given the first revelation of God's word. It will be the Jews first who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection. They will be the ones to see how the pieces of the puzzle kind of fit together and how Jesus' death on the cross atoned for the sin of all who believe. Jesus is not throwing scraps to dogs here. He is demonstrating compassion and mercy on those with whom he will have mercy in their affliction. Non-believers still receive the common grace of Jesus today. They may refuse to admit his unique deity, but even a pagan like Gandhi recognized the superior character of Jesus in his teachings. I don't know how many times I've read secular books that have, quote, wisdom from Jesus, such as, judge not lest you be judged, turn the other cheek, and of course the golden rule, do unto others as they would do unto you. It is a common grace to all mankind, but not necessarily his special grace, his saving grace reserved for his followers. And by extending his miracles to the Gentiles, he is not violating any of his held principles. So just like the episode of feeding the 5,000-plus Jews in Matthew 14, we have more crowds with Jesus exhibiting more compassion. He just expressed his concern about the crowd's hunger, and now he is met by more unbelief from his disciples. Verse 33, And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Well, the same situation just happened probably a month or two previously. And I gather that it was that long by the fact that grass is mentioned in chapter 14, verse 9, and this crowd sits on the dirt, most likely showing the transition from spring to summer. Now, possibly here, their unbelief emerges from the fact that these are Gentiles. It's one thing for Jesus to heal them, but another based upon his words in verse 26 that the Gentiles might be included in the messianic banquet. They may have thought, well, this is one miracle that just doesn't apply to this particular people. That may have been their thinking. But as one commentator wrote on this, and I quote him, we must never lose sight of a human being's vast capacity for unbelief. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. I am amazed. (laughs) I really am. Despite the amazing miracle of my personal salvation, how often unbelief and lack of faith still creep into my mind. I know that I have been forgiven of all my sin by the precious blood of Jesus, and yet I commit a repetitive sin, and I think, well, maybe he didn't forgive that one. And even after witnessing both massive feedings, a little later here in the next chapter, verses 5 through 12, the disciples still fail to realize that they can never go hungry with Jesus. I am personally glad for these glimpses of imperfect faith of the disciples and also of Jesus' patience with them. This time there are seven loaves of bread and a few fish, but Jesus draws attention to the number of loaves only with his question. He wants that number seven to be emphasized for later. And Jesus falls here into the same routine routine here that he did with the 5,000. He has everyone sit on the ground. He gives a Blessing of thanksgiving for the food. He always acknowledges the goodness of the Father for His own glory, and once again, he uses his disciples to distribute the food. And similar to chapter 14, verse 21, we're told afterwards that there were 4,000 men present. Women and children were there too, but they're not included in the count. Most likely, this would have been a crowd of of 8,000 plus. And just to give you a reference point, Toyota Field, where the Trash Pandas play only has a capacity for 7,000 people. This is a massive amount of people. And the text tells us that every one of them ate until they were satisfied. We conclude our story here with Jesus providing more confirmation that he is sufficient for our every need. Jesus can do whatever he wants. This time, the disciples, using the smaller lunchbox-sized Roman sparris baskets, pick up seven full baskets. And Jesus is making his point in each narrative. Remember last time, they picked up 12 large baskets of food, one for each of the disciples. That was in response to Jesus' command in chapter 14, verse 16. You give them something to eat. And now there are seven remaining baskets. So, despite their lack of faith, as it turns out, those seven loaves that they had were more than sufficient to feed everyone present. It's not just that Jesus performs this spectacular miracle, he's also teaching his followers through it. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. Do you hear me, church? Nothing is impossible. With Jesus. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Jesus is always enough. Isn't that right, brother? Isn't that right? Jesus is always enough. To finish out this chapter, as a fellow follower of Christ, allow me to make four observations here. First, I draw your attention to the fact that while there is indeed a spiritual element occurring in this passage, Jesus is meeting the physical needs of people. Jesus is meeting the physical needs of people. There is an element in the church that believes that we're only to share the gospel with nonbelievers as to only be concerned about the spiritual need. After all, they would say, what good is physical bread in hell? Let people suffer the consequences of their own actions. They would say, I'm under no obligation to relieve their suffering, at least not until they come to saving faith. Well, the actions of the Lord Jesus betray that kind of thinking. Jesus was concerned about the whole person, not just their soul, but also their bodies. So I would challenge you, what are you doing personally to alleviate the suffering of others? If you find yourselves lacking in that area, perhaps you might consider volunteering at ministries like Rose of Sharon or with the Lunches of Love program over at Legacy Elementary. Maybe you might help some mothers in distress at the Huntsville Pregnancy Resource Center. There are many ways that that we can bless others in physical ministry. The options are endless. But the question for you is... ARE YOU DOING IT UNTO THE LEAST OF THESE? ARE YOU? YOU PERSONALLY? THIS SHOULD LEAD US TO THE SECOND OBSERVATION. JESUS MODELS COMPASSION FOR OTHERS. JESUS MODELS COMPASSION FOR OTHERS. IF THERE IS EVER A HUMAN BEING ON THE EARTH THAT COULD BE SELF-ABSORBED WITH HIMSELF, IT WAS THE PERFECT GOD-MAN, RIGHT? But Philippians 2 teaches us, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. We must cultivate compassion towards other people. So church, let me ask you, has current circumstances caused you to be jaded towards your fellow man right now? Do you see people whose behavior is inconsistent with Christ and, and instead of being ca- compassionate, you find them repulsive? If that's you, congratulations. Congratulations you have become a Pharisee. My fear is that our present climate here, we, we feel the hostility of the world towards our faith, and, and we build up walls of anger that we think that are protecting us from them. We don't allow ourselves to be compassionate towards the lost and the poor. We don't see them as souls trapped in their sin. We most likely see them as enemies, or at the very least, we see them as inconvenient. Yet Jesus sees us in our need, sees us in our suffering, sees us in our sin, and he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't run from it. He moves toward it. He demonstrates compassion in all that he does, not only meeting our physical needs, but but also putting himself on a cross to meet our greatest need, which is reconciliation to a holy God. You might ask, well, how do I do this? How do I cultivate compassion? Well, it's in our text. Open your eyes and view others through the eyes of Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have union with Christ. That was the point in Philippians 2 when Paul wrote, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can do this. You can be compassionate. But it takes effort to set aside the self in order to see, to really see and look at others. And this goes hand in hand with a third observation. Jesus welcomed the Gentile of all people. Jesus welcomed the outsider. It's one thing to demonstrate compassion to people who are like us, but another to be welcoming to those who are known as our enemies. We must cultivate compassion towards others, especially those who are completely different than us. Jesus didn't have to heal the Gentile. There were plenty of sick people in Nazareth and in Capernaum on the other side of the lake. But he did so anyway. Jesus didn't have to feed the Gentiles before he sent them home. But he did. Jesus didn't have to enter the Gentile country. He he could have stayed on the western shores and, and just healed them from a distance. But real love was demonstrated by crossing over and serving them. And this shows our need to participate in worldwide missions. How beautiful. Can you imagine yourself trapped in your sin, immersed in a religious system that keeps you trapped there, unable to see? how beautiful are the feet of those who come to proclaim good news, especially those feet that take them into places that are hostile to Christianity. It's truly a beautiful act of service and one in which all of us, all of us should support fully. Even if we're not called to go, we should give all that we can to aid those who are. And finally, allow me to, to make this application just one step further to those who are on the outside of our faith. Friend, if you are not a Christian, observe in this passage the welcoming of the sinner. It doesn't matter what you think has defiled you. Jesus welcomes all who are willing to repent and come to him by faith. The gospel message is a simple one. Paul said it simply, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And the way he saves is truly remarkable. Each of us owes a debt of punishment to God for the individual rebellion that we have committed. Yet Jesus intervenes at the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And for those who place their faith in that act, Jesus offers his perfect right standing before the Father. Through the mediation of Jesus, we are reconciled to a holy God and become his children. And friend, you you see the type of savior he is. He is compassionate. He is willing to heal. He cares about the downtrodden. He's loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. Come to Jesus. Come to him and find the healing that you need for your soul. Let's pray. Lord, help us to rejoice with the Psalms and say, Oh, what a Savior! sings the songs of the redeemed. You have saved us. We were unworthy. We lived in a completely different continent, and yet you ensured that your gospel message got here so that we might hear and we might receive the beautiful story of what Christ has done on our behalf. Therefore, Lord, we proclaim this message. We want all to hear it. We want them all to come to you by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that as your church, as the body of Christ here on the earth, We pray, Lord, that you would increase in us a compassion for those around us, that you would make it our desire to be like your son Jesus, to to serve, to bring healing to not only the body, but also to the soul, to bring the balm of the gospel to those who are in darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to overcome our unbelief knowing that in you we can do all things and that you would confirm in us, Lord, as we obey by faith that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you and you command us to go and make disciples of all nations. Renew a right spirit in us, Lord, to glorify you and make your name known. So, Lord, we pray that you would help your church to rise this morning in order to fulfill our mission. We pray this only through the finished work of Christ. Amen. Brother Andrew.